0: You guys doing well this morning? Good. I want to welcome all of you who are here live in the room, and also want to welcome all of those of you who are watching online via our live stream. We're so glad that you've chosen to join us this morning. And if you are watching via our new live stream technology, we need to acknowledge to you that we're not quite up to par, okay? Back when we did the pre-recordings, we had closer in shots of me, higher resolution. You saw the notes and slides better. You didn't have people's heads in the way, Okay. We're going to rectify all that in the coming weeks. We've got some new equipment coming in, and we just appreciate your patience with us. And for all of you guys, can you see me okay? All right, I hope, hope so. All right, good. All right, I am really, really pumped up about this morning. This is a very crucial message, I think, for every single one of us. And I want to begin with this. Have you ever heard of the phrase genetic fallacy? Okay, you may or may not be familiar with this phrase, genetic fallacy. Let me just break it down for you. A fallacy is an error in reasoning, okay, something that just doesn't line up, something that doesn't make sense. So, for example, a famous one is a dog has four legs. My cat has four legs, so my cat is a dog, okay? No, all right? That's a genetic fallacy. That's a fallacy, just a generic fallacy. Okay, let me try this one. Okay, Bill lives in an enormous apartment complex. So, Bill must have an enormous apartment. Okay, that's a fallacy, right? There's something about that if you think through it that just doesn't quite line up. So, those are generic, just general fallacies. Now, a genetic fallacy is a little different than that. And I'll give you the definition here. A genetic fallacy is when somebody discounts the reliability of information based on the source rather than the merits of the information. Let me say that again. When somebody discounts the reliability of information simply based on the source, rather than the merits of that information. And now, we can commit the genetic fallacy for a variety of reasons, okay? We can do that based on somebody's age. You know, he's a boomer, she's a a millennial, right? Somebody's education, background, life experiences, socioeconomic status, religious affiliation. You can go on and on with this, how we can commit a genetic fallacy. And let me just give you a quick example of this. Let's say this afternoon you bump into somebody and they're not a church person, not a religious person, not a Christian, and you say to them, Hey, this morning my pastor said, and before you even get into the content of the information in the back of their mind, they may be thinking, Your pastor. Like, what could your pastor possibly know that could help me? Like, I'm not into that religious stuff. And they just tune you out. And do you see how easy it is to discount information based on the source? Rather than the merits of that information. But information and especially advice should be judged based on its own merit and not simply the source. And if not, if you fall for the genetic fallacy, which many people do, you could become your own worst enemy. And so today we are wrapping up this series called Your Own Worst Enemy. And the reason this is a big deal is because a single bad decision can be the first step in becoming your own worst enemy in life. And as we said back in week one, every bad habit begins with the first time. Every pattern begins with the first line. Every journey begins with the first step. And so in this series, we're taking a look at three preemptive habits that can help us not become our own worst enemy. Because when you become your own worst enemy, you're not the only person who gets hurt, right? I mean, if you blow up a particular area of your life, the shrapnel from that area of your life, it impacts those closest to you. So this is a really, really big deal because it impacts others, and it's not about us. right? At the end of the day, if you're a follower of Jesus, you're responsible for how your behavior impacts other people. So I want you to keep that in mind. This is not just about you working on your life. This is about you living your life in such a way that people are drawn to your life, and you can point to the source of life in you. In fact, if you're here this morning or you're watching online or listening to this and and you're not a Jesus follower, okay, you're not a church person, you're probably doing so because of a person you know who knows Christ. You saw something different in them, right? And you thought, well, I'm going to check out this Jesus thing. But you probably wouldn't be doing that if they had blown up their life. So, so far in this series, we've talked about two preemptive habits. All right. First, if you want to keep from becoming your own worst enemy, you've got to pay attention to the tension. Pay attention to tension points in your life. And here's what I mean by this. Anytime you have an option in life, an invitation, something you're considering, if there's something inside of you that's going, I don't know about this, I'm not so sure, you need to hit the pause button and pay attention to that tension. Figure out why you're concerned in that moment. And then last week, uh, Pastor Jason, he talked about the second preemptive habit. Pay attention to your internal narratives in life. Pay attention to the way you talk to yourself, the way you frame experiences in life, because our internal narratives, they can be helpful or they can be harmful. Our internal narratives can actually set us up to repeat past failures and make us our own worst enemy. Now today, preemptive habit number three is simply this. Pay attention to the voices of wisdom around you. Pay attention to the voices of wisdom around you. You know, most people who become their own worst enemy were warned, weren't they? Like somebody in your life said, I don't know about him. I don't know about her. I don't know about that job. I don't know about that investment. Most often, somebody tried to warn you, but you wouldn't listen. And our worst decisions, and by worst decisions, I mean those decisions that are real tipping points, points of no return, decisions where you wish you could go back and decide differently. Our worst decisions are always, always, always preceded by a series of unwise decisions. Okay, without fail, right, there was a whole series of decisions that you made that led to the point where you made that big, bad decision. So this habit of listening to wise voices around you is very, very important because if you're in the middle of making a choice right now, here's what I can guarantee you. Somebody is feeling the tension that you're ignoring. Somebody around you is not distracted by your internal narratives, those things you consistently tell yourself. And so they're able to connect some dots that maybe you can't connect. And maybe, just maybe, they're trying to say something to you, but because of your internal narrative, because you've already made up your mind, you're not listening. And so paying attention to wise voices around us is a very important habit. And my guess is you probably already know that up here, but for whatever reason, it's difficult for us to live that out. So today, what I want to do is I want to walk you through a story in the Old Testament. Okay, It's found in 1 Kings chapter 12. And it revolves around the fourth king of Israel. Let me give you a quick history lesson here. The first king of Israel was King Saul. Then, after that, second was King David. Then, following King David, was Solomon, his son, who was considered the wisest man who ever lived. Hey, he was the third king of Israel. And then the assumption was that when Solomon died, his son Rehoboam would take the throne. But it didn't actually happen that way, okay? because another person came into the picture. His name was Jeroboam. And who's Jeroboam? All right, I'm glad you asked. Okay, here we go. And don't mix up these names. I, I might mix up the names this morning. Rehoboam and Jeroboam, they sound so much alike. Okay, Rehoboam, Rehoboam is Solomon's son, supposed to be king over all Israel. And this guy is Jeroboam. says this, now, now Jeroboam, Jeroboam was a man of standing. That is, people thought this guy had it going on. He was an extraordinary leader, okay, well-known in the community. And it says, and when Solomon saw how well the young man did his work, he put him in charge of the whole labor force, which was a big, big deal. I mean, he was elevated to a place of great influence in the kingdom of Israel because he was in charge of the entire labor force. Now, by this time this season in Solomon's life you know what he was doing he was busy building all these monuments all these buildings to himself so much so that he had get this over 150,000 stone cutters and stone transporters I mean imagine that massive building projects going on and it wasn't paid labor as much as it was forced labor and so Jeroboam he's in charge of this really massive project And one day, he's leaving the city of Jerusalem, and something very odd happens. It says, about that time, Jeroboam was going out of Jerusalem, and Ahijah, the prophet of Shiloh, met him on the way wearing a new cloak. So he's leaving Jerusalem. This prophet walks up, and you can pretty much be assured that anytime a prophet comes up to you, something strange is going to happen, all right? Here it is. And Ahijah took hold of the new cloak he was wearing and tore it into 12 pieces. Then he said to Jeroboam, take 10 pieces for yourself, for this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. See, I'm going to tear the kingdom out of Solomon's hand and give you 10 tribes. Now, you may know that Israel was made up of 12 tribes at this point in time. And so this prophet says, well, Solomon's going to lose 10, and Jeroboam, you're going to become the king of 10 tribes of Israel, okay? Why? Well, by this time in history, Solomon had actually become a pagan king, pagan king. He was worshiping the gods of his foreign wives, and he had a boatload of wives, people, okay? There were so many wives, they were actually numbered, 700, the Bible says, okay? I want you to try to imagine that, 700 wives. Probably the reason they're number he can't remember all their names, right? <laughs> I mean, just, just try to envision that. Hey, Bob, here's my wife, um, uh, Wendy. Yeah, Wendy. That's it, right? Why did he? Why? Why seven hundred wives? We see he married the daughters of all the leaders of the countries, the areas around him, and he did that to create peace treaties with them. But consequently, Solomon started worshiping the pagan gods of his foreign wives. And eventually, he was building temples, places of worship all over Judea to these pagan gods. Now, if you know anything about the Old Testament, you know that was absolutely opposed to what God had commanded. It was not the way to go. So by this time, Solomon had basically abandoned his faith. And now, Solomon was actually treating his subjects like the pagan kings did, like slaves. Well, this prophet says, hey, God is fed up with this. And when Solomon dies, the kingdom's going to be divided, and Jeroboam, you're going to get 10 tribes. God says this, but for the sake of my servant David and the city of Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, he will have one tribe. Now, in case you're wondering, the tribe of Levi, the 12th piece of the equation, that didn't count. That belonged to God. And so basically, what God was saying is, you know what? I'm going to honor my covenant, my promise to David that somebody out of his lineage will rule, but they're not going to rule over the whole kingdom. Now, this was so weird, (laughs) to Jeroboam that he couldn't keep his mouth shut. He started telling people about this experience, and eventually, King Solomon gets word of this. He hears that some prophet had proclaimed Jeroboam was going to be a king in Israel. And what do ancient kings do when they realize their dynasty is threatened? Yeah, Solomon goes after, him, tries to kill Jeroboam. Jeroboam gets word of this, flees to Egypt, and stays there until Solomon dies. And this is where the story gets really interesting, really practical, people. Solomon dies, and the assumption is then that Rehoboam, his son, Will be coronated as the new king and take his father's place. The Bible says, Rehoboam went to Shechem, for all Israel had gone there to make him king. When Jeroboam, son of Nebat, heard this, he was still in Egypt, where he had fled from King Solomon. He returned from Egypt. So they sent for Jeroboam. Okay, why? Well, because he's still an outstanding leader, he has a tremendous amount of respect from the people. It says, and he and the whole assembly of Israel went to Rehoboam and said to him, your father put a heavy yoke on us, but now lighten the harsh labor and the heavy yoke he put on us, and we will serve you. Hey, the people said, hey, we will serve you, but you got to stop with all this nonstop construction, all these taxes. You got to stop treating us so harshly like your dad Solomon did. By taking our men out of the city, sending them off to foreign countries to cut stones and build monuments to your dad. Well, at this point, Rehoboam made two really good decisions. Right? The first is this: Rehoboam answered, Go away for three days and then come back to me. So the people went away. Okay, he said, Let me think about this. Good idea. And then King Rehoboam made another good decision. It says, Then King Rehoboam consulted the elders who had served his father Solomon during his lifetime. Okay, these guys are older. They're wiser. They've got perspective. They knew things that Solomon didn't know, and they knew things that Rehoboam would never know because they were connected, way more connected than he was. So these are good men to go to for advice. And he asked them, How would you advise me to answer these people? And here's what these older, wiser men said. If today you will be a servant to these people and serve them and give them a favorable answer, they will always be your servants. Like, do you want to be a king of a united kingdom? Then here's how, okay? Let them have their interest. Put their interest ahead of your own. Very wise counsel, very good leadership advice. See, these guys knew. But Rehoboam thought what we might have been tempted to think. Like, you know, what do a bunch of old men know, right? Like, they've lived their life already. I mean, they've had their time in the sun, they've had their influence. They don't understand. Like, I'm a young man with my whole life ahead of me, I've got a legacy to build. What could they possibly know? And so, their advice, their good advice, based on the source, based on who was giving that advice, he just rejected the advice of those elders. See, it was what he needed to hear, but it wasn't what he wanted to do. And, folks, this is where you and I need to pay special attention because their advice was the only way for Rehoboam to get where he wanted to be. And maybe there are people around you, and you're discounting their advice just based on who they are. Like, well, they've never walked a mile in my shoes, they don't know what it's like to, to run a business. They've never been married, never been a parent. They're only 18, right? They've never been divorced, never gone through a second marriage, had to go through that, tried to blend a family, never had to. Meet a t- reasons to discount their advice, but maybe there's someone around you who has the exact need to help you get where you want to be. See, for Rehoboam, in this case, it was very simple. <laughs> he wanted a united. Instead, you know what he did? He did what we often do. He gathered some people around him to tell him what he wanted to hear, right? Let me tell you how to become your own worst enemy very simply. Just gather people around you who will only tell you what you want to hear. Finances, your future, it's very simple. Gather people around you. Surround yourself with people who only tell you what you want to hear. Our sincere apologies. We experienced technical difficulties and lost the last few minutes of today's message. We are in the process of upgrading equipment and that will resolve these issues in the future. To catch the end of Brian's message, check out the written transcript and the sermon notes for this message on hillcountry.life. Thank you for your patience.